Late January 1996, a young FBI agent in the D.C. field office named Molly Flynn gets an assignment from her higher-ups. There's a lawyer in town named Tony Besegli who claims to have a client who might know something about the Unabomber. Go talk to him. When I first met Tony, he provided some material and told me that he did not even know the identity of the client, but he considered himself to have, you know, a retainer of sorts, although he was representing them free of charge. Molly isn't on the Unibomb task force, but she's in D.C., helps out the investigation when she can. What she gets from Tony, the lawyer, is a bunch of letters between Tony's client and a person whose writing sounds like it might be the Unabomber. I, I recall reading the letters, and just my first impression was that the, the writer was an angry person. But, you know, they kind of referenced mom and dad, and so it's, the context would make you understand that the uh, author and the recipient were brothers. The letters were just the start. There are other things this potential suspect had written. Including something that was written in the early 70s that may have been something of a precursor to the Unabom Manifesto. This was the essay that would eventually make its way to Kathy Puckett, the one she got at the end of our last episode that made the hairs on the back of her neck stand up. It's a 23-page typewritten essay from 1972, six years before the first Unabom attack. Molly only has time to skim it. Her job is just to deliver the essay to the FBI lab. But the FBI lab is only interested in one thing, whether the guy who wrote this essay used the same typewriter as the Unabomber. I think they eliminated it within probably five minutes. They obviously were looking for specific characters, and they, I think they told me right there, like, no, this doesn't match. And I recall saying, okay, well, who's going who's gonna to look at the content? Because that's what it was really for. And um, they said, oh, no, we'll send that to the task force. This is the protocol. Analyze the typewriter sample at the lab, send the essay to the task force, and let them handle the rest. But Molly's curious, so she gets her own copy of the essay and starts reading more carefully. But I was looking at the essay, I was like, wow, you know, I'm surprised I haven't heard from the task force about this uh, material. She calls up the task force in San Francisco and asks to speak to one of the senior agents, Joel Moss. And I asked him, I said, hey, Joel, do you have a copy of this essay that we got from the attorney here in D.C.? And I remember him saying that, well, I have a note here saying that the typewriting doesn't match. And I said, well, no, I realize that, but I, did you get a copy of it? And he said, well, I don't know. I haven't seen it. And I said, well, I, I'm, so, I'm sorry. I, I think the, the lab told me they would send it to you. And he said, well, sometimes our fax machine doesn't work. So I said, well, you know your case better than I do, but I think you're really going to want to read this. This is Project Unibomb, an Apple original podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. I'm Eric Benson. Episode 6, The Devil's Dilemma. If you know just a few things about the Unabomber, you probably know his brother turned him in. And that's true, sort of. But it makes the process sound straightforward. Like David Kaczynski made a phone call one morning, an FBI agent nodded solemnly on the other end of the line, and that night the Unabomber was behind bars. The truth is much messier, full of doubt and confusion and disagreement, 
stretched out over a period of eight months. And that process didn't even start with David Kaczynski. The first person to actually make the connection, to think that Ted Kaczynski might be the Unabomber, was Linda Patrick, David's wife. You might remember from the first episode, Linda was on vacation in Paris in August of 1995, and she happened to read a few stories about the Unabomber and his manifesto in the International Herald Tribune. When David joined her a few weeks later, Linda let him in on a fear she couldn't shake, that the manifesto sounded like it could have been written by Ted. David hadn't paid much attention to the case, but his immediate reaction was, what? My brother, the Unabomber? Ted could be angry and cruel, but he'd never been violent so far as David knew. The whole thing seemed impossibly far-fetched. So when they returned to the U.S. at the end of the summer, David wasn't even thinking about it. My mother visited for a while. My cousin visited. Uh, the World Series was playing on TV. My favorite team was playing. And, and so uh, as my mother's visit was winding down, uh, we took her to the airport and Linda said, Dave, I'm, I really think we should try to find that manifesto. It had been more than a month since the manifesto was published, so they couldn't run out to a newsstand to pick up a copy, and they didn't have the internet at home, not even the dial-up AOL-era internet. So they went to the library at Union College, where Linda taught. David logged onto a computer and found the manifesto. He sat there reading, with Linda by his side. And as he read those opening paragraphs on the evils of the industrial technological system, it seemed possible, really unlikely, but possible, that his brother was the Unabomber. There's one chance in a thousand, David told Linda. To which Linda replied, David, that's significant. So he and Linda started doing their own analysis, comparing the manifesto with the hundreds of letters David had kept from Ted. Never found the smoking gun or anything that would say, yeah, my brother definitely wrote this, but I remember at some point he had said something like, uh, these modern philosophers, they are not cool-headed logicians, which is what he thought an objective truth seeker should be. And um, there was that same phrase, cool-headed logicians, philosophers are not cool-headed logicians. And I thought I'd seen that now. I frantically searched through all the letters I had. I couldn't find that phrase. Now, there were a few of his letters I'd lost over the years, so I presume it was one of the ones that was lost, but I was pretty sure. I mean, that was the, the hardest evidence I could find. But how hard was that evidence really? It was just one phrase, and he couldn't even find it in the piles of letters he'd kept. But I have to say, for me, it was like a roller coaster. In some sense, I'd, I'd be reading some passage in the manifesto and think I was reading my brother's <laughs> letter. And then, oh, wait a second. No, this isn't my brother's letter. This is the manifesto. My gosh, I can't even tell the difference between the two. So, you know, I'm thinking it must be him. And then the next day I'm thinking, ah, you know, this is projection. I've been worried about my brother for years. And uh, ultimately, the realization that it could be Ted was increasing steadily, incrementally. Um, but I remember at some point telling Linda that I thought there might be a 50% chance that he, he had written it, that he was responsible for these bombings. David had gone from one chance in a thousand to one in two. 
Still, for every phrase that seemed like it must have been written by Ted, there were other things that seemed to prove it couldn't be him. Like the sketch, the one that had been made after a woman saw the Unabomber place a bomb outside the computer store in Salt Lake City. She described him as being much younger than Ted, at least 10 years younger than Ted, three inches taller than I knew Ted to be, um, with a different hair color. But, um, oh, gosh. Any choice we made could lead to somebody's death. If we don't do anything and somebody else gets killed and my brother's responsible for it, well, we'd have go through the rest of our lives with blood on our hands. But the other horn of the dilemma was the realization that if we turn Ted in, he ends up being executed. What would it be like for me to go through the rest of my life with my brother's blood on my hands? Um, if you, you think of all the considerations involved here, it was, there were times I actually thought, gosh, what kind of a devil would design a dilemma like this? In late November, David decides, instead of contacting the FBI, he's going to write to Ted. He's not sure exactly what he's hoping for, but he asks if he can come visit and help Ted resupply before the heavy winter snows. If Ted says, sure, great, come on up, David can wipe the sweat off his brow. That's not what Ted says. I get just choked with frustration at my inability to get our stinking family off my back once and for all, Ted writes. And stinking family emphatically includes you. I don't ever want to see or hear from you or any other member of our family again. So David moves on to plan B. Linda has a friend named Susan Swanson, who's a private investigator. And Susan connects David and Linda with a retired FBI profiler someone who can do a forensic comparison between Ted's letters and the Unabomber's manifesto. He came back and said that uh, he got a couple of ex- other experts involved. They believed that there was a 60% chance that the author of My Brother's Letters was also the author of the manifesto. Well, that's a whole lot more than one in a thousand. It's even more than 50-50. And at that point, we realized we needed to make a decision. We needed to do something to stop the violence. You know, there was a 1-800 hotline uh, that, that a lot of people called in, including a lot of people, as I understand it, who were saying that family members might be the Unabomber, but you and Linda went about it a, a different way. Why, why didn't you just call the Unabomb hotline? Yeah, I felt very, very strongly that... Um, we needed to be involved to the extent that we could be involved. In other words, I wanted them to know more about my brother, about his vulnerabilities. Um, I wanted to make sure that if there were to be arrest, an arrest, it would be a safe arrest. David was right to be concerned. He didn't want Ted to end up like the Branch Davidians at Waco or the young mother killed at Ruby Ridge. He didn't know what Ted might do if he was cornered and what the FBI might do in return. At the Unabomb Task Force headquarters in San Francisco, there was a document that agents were constantly updating, labeled, Known Unabomb Facts, 
fictions and theories. The head of the task force, Terry Turchi, had commissioned it. Facts were mostly the physical evidence in the case. The typewriter samples from the letters, the hand-carved parts inside the devices, stuff like that. Fictions were the key suspects that had already been washed out, and the once promising leads that had fizzled. Theories were the most tantalizing item. They were the connections, deductions, even pure gut feelings that no one had ever been able to disprove. Terry told the agents on the task force not to lose sight of the theories. At some point in time, a couple of these theories are going to ram right into these facts, and we're going to know we're on the right track. And then all of the other things we can bring into this, we'll start bringing into it. In January of 1996, that moment happens. The task force has a new suspect. This guy checks a bunch of the right boxes. He has strong ties to the Bay Area. He has a history of building small bombs. And he happens to live really close to the tiny post office near the airport where the Unabomber mailed the device that killed Thomas Moser. We decide we need to know what he's throwing out in his trash. So the first trash cover, the first time they bring a bag of crap out of this guy's trash, they find hickory wood in the trash, hickory wood fragments. Now keep in mind that one of the things we had on our our facts was that uh, the Unabomber hand-carved his bomb switches from hickory. Wood apparently has its own biological fingerprints, so they could see if these particular fragments were made from the same kind of hickory they found in some of the bombs. So the, the hickory the fragments are taken and sent to the lab. The lab calls us and says, this hickory is almost identical totally to the hickory switches and the wood that the Unabomber has used in carving his hickory switches for his bombs. Well, now that, that raises all the alarm bells. You need to get a search warrant. You need to do this. You need to do that. We, we, we need to stop this person before they bomb again. But during all of this, what's your next step with this guy? What, what is he doing today? What is he doing this minute? You know, are you watching him? After all these years, they think, we've got him. We just have to put the final pieces together. But then it all unravels. When they dig into this guy's past, the timeline just doesn't match. He wasn't where the bombs were sent from at the right time. That's where things stood, another dead lead, in early February, when that young FBI agent in D.C., Molly Flynn, calls up Joel Moss on the Unibomb task force to tell him about the 23-page essay she's just read. Joel's got Unibomb scar tissue at this point. Another suspect, the most promising they've had in years, has just washed out. He's not going to get excited about a call from a junior agent in D.C., But he hears her out, and at the end of the day, he picks up the essay Molly faxed over and starts reading. And it dawns on him right then. This is it. He calls the task force's behavioral analyst, Kathy Puckett, and asks her if she wants to get a bite to eat. When they sit down, he casually hands her the essay, careful not to influence her in any way. Kathy reads it and says, Where did you get this? The next day, they share it with Terry Churchy, their boss, who reacts the same way. Uh, that is not your traditional fingerprint, and that is not a strand of DNA, and that is not uh, an eyewitness. But I think it's just as good. Uh, when, when we saw the 23-page essay, and we read it, and that didn't take that long to read, you can read it a lot of times, and then compared it with the uh, Unabomber's Manifesto, there was simply no doubt. It could not, you could not put that down if you believed that no two people write alike. 
Like the manifesto, the 23-page essay asserts that science and technology are destroying human society, depriving individuals of their freedom and liberty. Both essays are fixated on the same range of topics, genetic engineering, artificial intelligence, the electrical stimulation of the brain, the sexual repression of the Victorian era, propaganda, mass media, surveillance. And there are similar distinctive phrases scattered throughout both of them. The task force wants to know more. So three agents, Joel, Kathy, and their colleague, Mad Max Knoll, get on a conference call with Molly Flynn. Max was grilling me. He was grilling me about this suspect, and he was it was almost like he was cross-examining me and interrogating me about, well, he doesn't match this, and he doesn't match that. I didn't believe it. I, I said, you know, just because somebody expresses these ideas, and just because there's some spellings, are, that doesn't mean it's a person. And I, and I said, listen, I, I understand that we don't have a timeline for him that puts him in all of the places that the crimes occurred. What we have is a biography that suggests he had a significant connection to all of the places where the crimes occurred. The laboratory said it wasn't typed on the antique Smith Corona Pica-style type 2.54 spacing machine. It was typed on a different antique typewriter. So he was being very kind of skeptical, and then Kathy was saying how the hair was standing up on the back of her neck. Max remained skeptical, even when Tony Basegli, the lawyer, revealed his client's brother was Theodore John Kaczynski, a former math professor living off the grid in the Montana woods, suspect number 2,416 in the Unabom case. And once you knew it was suspect 2416 Theodore Kaczynski, were you still so-so? Oh, yeah. Hey, I listen, you know, we have all of the, so the experts telling us that he's got to be within a 500-mile radius of uh, San Francisco, and we thoroughly believe that. And here's a guy that is 750 miles from San Francisco who lives in a cabin with no electricity, no running water, no means of transportation other than an old beat-up bicycle. And how can he get from that location to the Bay Area uh, would be exceedingly uh, difficult. Plenty of other agents agreed with Max. They couldn't believe Terry was putting any stock in this theory. Oh, yeah, people were very mad. In fact, uh, one agent said, I'm going to call FBI headquarters. I've got some friends there, and I'm going to tell them you're incompetent. (laughs) I said, well, they haven't figured that out by now. Terry felt certain they'd found the Unabomber, but he understood how flimsy the lead could look to seasoned criminal guys, like one big fiction up on the board. So for two years, you're preaching to us fact. We gotta gotta work with facts. And the lab says fact, right? He needed a foundry to do all this heavy duty work. There's no foundry up there. He doesn't even have a bathroom. He doesn't even have hardly a a, a sufficient heating system. He's got a potbelly stove in a cabin. How can we now turn around and say to to the courts, to judges, to the DOJ, to America, we're going to go charging at this guy because he's the Unabomber. How can you do that? This was the key. The Unabomb task force needed to convince a judge to issue a warrant before they swept in on Ted Kaczynski's cabin. They needed more facts. And to get them, they needed to talk to his brother.
The biggest news story in the United States in early 1996 was the weather. For two solid months, the eastern seaboard was barraged by storm after storm. The blizzard of 96 in early January, then smaller follow-up storms. Six inches on January 15th, another eight the first weekend in February. The New York Times ran 271 stories in the first two months of 1996 that included the word snowstorm. They ran three that included the word Unabomber. When Kathy Puckett lands in Washington in mid-February, the 12th major snowstorm of that winter is hitting the region. She's there to meet with David and Linda. Tony Basegli had communicated to the FBI that David was prepared to cooperate with the investigation. But he doesn't want to be used as a pawn in some sting operation. He has other requests, too. David wants his identity to be kept secret until he says otherwise. Because if Ted is ultimately arrested, David wants to be the one to tell him, I turned you in. Wanda Kaczynski, David and Ted's mother, is off-limits to interview until David says so. And under no circumstances can the FBI contact Ted due to his, quote, fragile psychological state. Maybe most importantly, David wanted some assurance that the government wouldn't pursue the death penalty against his brother. All of that is on Kathy Puckett's mind as she prepares to meet David for the first time in her D.C. hotel. We have to make him comfortable, she thinks. He can't feel like this is an interrogation. So I called the desk, uh, the uh, reservation desk at the hotel, and said, I need to move to a suite. You know, Terry wasn't surprised that I was moving to a suite. I usually try to squeeze as much money out of the budget as possible. So I moved the whole thing to um, the interview site to a suite and had some um, pastries and coffee and tea and everything and just made it as warm as I could. Once he started talking about his brother, first of all, he told me that he hadn't personally seen his brother for 10 years. And I said, well, then it was remarkable that um, you uh, were able to recognize his writing, um, his style, and some of the words he used. And he said, well, it's not really that remarkable because my brother has been very, very important in my life. I've always admired him, always looked up to him. The meeting goes long, 10 hours, Kathy says. David brought more letters with him, which Kathy and a few other agents handle with white surgical gloves, laying them out on the hotel room bed. One of the other agents in the room is Molly Flynn. She'd called attention to Ted's essay, which is what led them here. But she's not convinced he's their guy. They don't have any hard evidence. As Kathy talks to David, Molly hangs back, looking over the letters spread out on the bed. In one of the letters from Ted to David, I see a reference to L. Sprague de Camp's The Ancient Engineers, which was one of the, I think, maybe four works cited by name in the Unabom Manifesto. And my eyes just got really big, and I looked at the agent next to me who was one of the investigators, and I, I just pointed it to him. And, and <laughs> I don't remember what he wrote. He wrote some kind of sarcastic comment to me, but um, that's when I started thinking, oh, wow, this might really be the guy. Wow. After that meeting, the FBI wants more. More letters, more essays, more evidence. Anything that will help them build a case. Kathy meets up with David the following week in El Paso, 
and together they drive out to his cabin in the Texas Badlands. He has an underground bunker there where dozens of old letters from Ted are stored. The week after that, they're in Chicago, where David is helping his mother Wanda clean out their old family house. Wanda's about to move to upstate New York to be near David and Linda. While Kathy's in Chicago, the task force higher-ups ask her to brief the local office about this new suspect, Ted Kaczynski. She meets with the big boss there, the SAC, special agent in charge, and one of his assistants, the ASAC. And when I told them that uh, we believed that the Unabomber was living in a cabin with no running water and no power in Montana and had been for 25 years, they went unglued. I was in the SEC's office and they actually shouted. I remember the ASAC was standing over me, wagging his finger in my face, saying, you're out of your fucking mind. <laughs> you know, this, this is unbelievable. This is ridiculous. I'm going to talk to your boss. Who did they think the Unabomber was? Oh, they had, they, they thought it was a guy who had been one of the Dungeons and Dragons participants. The D&D guys, Jeff Ward. This is almost two decades after he first became a suspect. One quick question, just as I'm kind of visualizing this meeting at the FBI. Around how many agents were there screaming at you and how many of them were women? Oh, maybe one or two out of about 20. Yeah, I was just imagining a room of screaming men. Yeah, but that's not the first time. I mean, I was four years in the in the Air Force first. <laughs> you know, screaming guys, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's not that I would back down, but it's like, you know, you can't really compete with that. You just wait for them to run down. <laughs> I'm not going to yell back at them. That would be uh, a waste of breath. I heard a quote from a couple FBI agents while I was reporting this story. They all attributed it to David Kaczynski's lawyer, Tony Basegli. Women solved the Unabom case. Without David's wife, Linda, the FBI might still be searching for the Unabomber. Without Linda's private eye friend, Susan, David might never have had the confidence to approach the government with his fears. Without Molly, in the FBI's D.C. field office, who knows when the task force would have read that 23-page essay. And without the task force's behavioral analyst, Kathy they might never have gotten their reluctant key informant, David Kaczynski, to work so closely with them. When I asked Kathy about this, she said it wasn't a coincidence. Being a woman in the FBI gave you a different way of looking at things. You've got to keep in mind that, that I came in very early. I came in in 78. They really didn't think they needed women in the Bureau. Um, a lot of people still didn't. Um, this is the experience of a woman in a man's world, you see, because, you know... Uh, I always told uh, Joel, who was my partner for a lot of years, and I said, you know, the problem with you is that you don't know what it's like to be a minority. You really don't. You've always been, you know, at the top of the heap. Because uh, if you don't grow up thinking or are treated when you're growing up thinking that you are uh, golden, uh, you have a lot more empathy for everybody else you know, around you and uh, everybody else in in, in um, not the top position. If you're at the pinnacle, it's very hard to relate to people who are not. Kathy's ability to empathize with David was vital to the Unabom case. But some agents start wondering if she's over-empathizing, following David around the country, getting dribs and drabs of information from this guy who might be the Unabomber's brother, when a bomb could go off at any moment. The doubts get back to someone Kathy does not want to hear from. I don't know if I told you about uh, 
when Jim Freeman almost had my scalp. You didn't, but it's on my list of questions, so let's go there. (laughs) Okay. Jim Freeman ran the FBI's San Francisco office. He was one of the first agents I met reporting this story. Jim comes across as in control. It's not hard to imagine him being tough on his agents. Terry Turchi may have run the task force, but Terry worked for Jim. So when Kathy heard from Jim, it wasn't like getting scolded by your teacher. It was like getting called over the intercom to the principal's office. So Freeman gets on the phone with me and he says, listen, um, how's it going over there? And I said, you know, yeah, well, we're getting some good stuff and David's this and David's that and he's continuing to help us. And he says, here's what I want you to do. We'll get David to write his brother a letter and say something in there that that gets a response. You know, maybe something about uh, their mother. I don't know. You know, he he said, whatever it is, whatever the letter is, you know, have him write a letter. And I said, boss, we can't do that. Remember, one of Tony Bisegli's conditions was that his client David wouldn't be used in a sting operation. I said, boss, David is not going to do anything operationally for the FBI. He said, what? He said, what are you talking about? And I said, um, we promised we wouldn't use them operationally. Listen, I told you to do that, and that's what you're going to do. You're going to get him to write this letter. We've got to get some momentum on this. You know, you're talking to him. You're not getting anywhere. I said, no, we are getting somewhere. Well, I want a letter written. We need to get some sort of outreach to the suspect there. And I said, we promised we wouldn't. We agreed that we wouldn't. And he just screamed at me. Jim Freeman says he doesn't remember pressing for a letter, but he acknowledges pushing Kathy to get things moving with David. A clock is ticking loudly in Jim's head. Agents are already on the ground in Montana, stalking Ted Kaczynski from a distance. They know their suspect is still a threat. Although they didn't know it at the time, Ted had in fact just built another bomb. What Jim definitely does know is the whole Unibomb operation is a massively expensive bureaucratic nightmare that needs to be wrapped up soon. So Jim sends his number two, Terry Turchi, the head of the task force, to babysit Kathy at her next stop on the David Kaczynski tour. When we ended up in Schenectady uh, a week or two later, Freeman hadn't hardly talked to me since, and he said, I am not sending her up there by herself. You are going to go along with that team. You are going to be there in charge. I don't want her in charge on this. She's not, she doesn't listen to orders. <laughs> Schenectady was the most important stop yet. That's where Kathy was finally going to be able to talk to Wanda Kaczynski, whom she'd been wanting to speak with for weeks. So Kathy and Terry and a couple other agents land in Albany and head to Wanda's new home. When they arrive, David's inside with his mother, preparing her for what's about to happen. I was much too anxious, uh, much too overwrought to sit down. I was kind of pacing the floor back and forth. David asks Wanda, have you heard about the Unabomber and his manifesto? Yes, she says. Well, you know how Ted feels about technology, right? You know, I finally got to the point where I said, Mom, um, I'm so concerned about the possibility that Ted may be involved in these crimes. And at that point, she just said very quickly, oh, don't tell anyone. It's the last thing I wanted to hear, really. And I said, Mom, I I already have told someone. 
I've gone to the FBI. I've shared with them my suspicions, and they are currently investigating the possibility that Ted might be involved in these series of bombings. She looked at me for a few moments and then, uh, you know, got up out of her chair. She walked up to me and uh, reached her arms up around my neck, put a kiss on my cheek. And then she said, David, I can't imagine what you've been struggling with. It was at that point then she said, okay, what what do you want me to do? And I said, well, the FBI would like to talk with you. And so she said, well, when do they want to speak with me? And I said, well, mom, they're actually waiting outside. Kathy and a couple other agents are with Terry, waiting for David to give them the go-ahead to come in. And when the moment arrives, Terry decides he doesn't need to lean on Kathy, like Jim Freeman thought he might. He just lets her take the lead. Terry said, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. You guys know the drill. You know that what we're going to try to do is get as much information from her if she will speak to us as possible, and if she will let us search that chest and whatever other possession she has of Ted's. And I said, yeah, I understand that. So he said, so I'm not going to come in. It'd be too many people. So I'll stay out here. So he stayed out in that freezing car. I remember at one point looking out the window and seeing the car rocking and he was, he had really loud rock music on and he was rocking out, trying to keep himself warm, (laughs) turning on the engine and letting it run, letting the heater run because it was bitter cold. So when we walked in, uh, she was very hospitable, made us tea, uh, said, you know, my son Ted is very sensitive and many things bother him, but he would never, I would never believe that he could do anything like this, but if I know that you have a job to do. And um, I'm not going to stand in your way. Um, Anything that you want to talk to me about, okay, I will. Kathy asks Wanda about Ted's childhood, about the anger he's long directed at her, the temper tantrums over care packages, the cruel names he's called her. He had written her savage letters, and she kept every one of them. She kept every single one of them in the same envelopes, the same way her son did. And... uh, I said, do you think that we can look at these things? And she said, yes. And uh, she gave us free reign. Wanda and David were still holding out hope that something in the chest where Wanda kept those letters would absolve Ted, that dates wouldn't match up, that there'd be some explanation for the similarities in the writing. But for Kathy, it was a bonanza. The Unabomb task force was busy putting together an affidavit that hinged on comparisons of the Unabomber's writings to Ted Kaczynski's. Kathy believed she'd found enough to make the case. We come back with the treasure trove. We walked out with with boxes full of things. And Terry was hugely proud, frozen as he was. He was hugely proud that um, it worked. And, and she cooperated. And we got a lot of documents. And I'm sure that David was just glad to see the the back of us when we we left there. In a major operation like this one, you need to get sign-off from the highest levels of government. And despite Kathy's certainty, 
word comes down that the documents they've found are not enough. The Bureau can't risk another screw-up. So they wait for something else. A new witness, some new piece of physical evidence, another bomb to go off. And while they wait, word comes back that someone familiar with the investigation has leaked it to a reporter. The reporter knows the FBI is surrounding a suspect in Montana. And he knows the suspect's name. It's not a common name, so I knew that I had it nailed enough that I could go on the air. That's next time on Project Unibomb. Project Unibomb is an Apple original podcast produced by Pineapple Street Studios. This episode was produced by Melissa Slaughter and me, I'm Eric Benson. Our senior producer is Jonathan Menhivar. Our producer is Elliot Adler. Editing by Joel Lovell and Maddie Sprung-Kaiser. Our fact checker is Sarah Ivry. The episode was mixed by Davey Sumner, Jason Richards, Elliot Adler, and Jonathan Menhivar. Studio recording by Brian Standifer at the Texas Monthly Studio. Our artwork is by Guillaume Casasus. Music by Mark Orton and John Hancock. Additional music by Eric Phillips and Jeff Baxter. Legal services for Pineapple Street by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. Thanks for listening.